Furthermore, the equation E is equal to MC square. And here's the discovery. I'm gonna make him an offer again. Welcome, valuable PhD, to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. As always, you can join us for our next live show on our Facebook page where we stream the show live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just go to facebook.com forward slash my cheeky scientist. We also stream the show live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on our Cheeky Scientist YouTube page. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to excel in industry. If you want to learn more about Cheeky Scientist or our program, the Cheeky Scientist Association, you can go to phdsgethired.com. Just enter your name and email address, and we will send you all of our free materials about transitioning into industry. What is the Cheeky Scientist Association? It is the world's largest training program for PhDs by PhDs that includes a complete blueprint of how to transition into industry and a private job referral network only of PhDs in industry and transitioning into industry. If you already have an industry job or if you want to learn more about developing your business acumen for industry, you can learn about our Scientist MBA Advanced Program at phdsgethired.com. We have another great show lined up for you today, so we're going to jump in now. Today's show is about how to stay focused as a PhD in your job search or otherwise. We have on a very special guest, Dr. Greg Wells, who's going to be talking about his book, The Focus Effect. And a lot more, everything having to do with focus. We're going to talk about flow states. We're going to talk about how to approach your job search or any goal, goal in a series of sprints. Uh, instead of just looking at the, the long-term picture, how can you break this down? Uh, we're going to have Dr. Greg Wells help us out. Uh, we have a great show lined up today. Uh, we are going to go through the show me the data section. We're going to be focusing on focus. We're going to talk about flow. We'll be bringing on Jeanette to go through that section. Uh, then we'll be bringing on our special guest, Dr. Greg Wells. After that, we'll be bringing on Asia Isbell to talk about uh, the staying focused in business, how increasing your business acumen, uh, focusing not just on the technical side of things where you know we're very comfortable as PhDs, but learning to focus elsewhere, learning to expand your focus onto new things, learn new things can help you not just get your first job, um, but get... Uh, to go forward in your career trajectory as well. All right, so we're going to move forward to the show me the data section, and we're going to start talking about focus and flow states. This is going to set us up for our special guest, Dr. Greg Wells. His book, again, I'll show it to you a little bit early if you want to check it out while we're going through this, The Focus Effect. Here you can search The Focus Effect on Amazon or online on Dr. Greg Wells' website as well, and we'll talk more about that later. Okay, Jeanette, let me just start by saying, what is flow? What is flow? What does it have to do with focus before we even go to the first figure? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so flow is sort of like if you ever have done something, the way that I like to describe it is when you do something and you sort of completely lose track of everything else. Nothing else matters. You're completely like in, engrossed in whatever you're doing. You're totally focused. That, that's my connection between flow and focus. 
is that you're totally focused on what you're doing and nothing else matters. So like for all of our attendees right now watching this show, basically. <laughs> maybe, no. you know, <laughs> maybe for you right now in this moment. Okay. So yeah. So give me some examples of when you achieve flow. Yeah. So for me, um, there's two times when it really happens whenever I'm writing something new. Um, I, that's one of my passions is writing and putting things down and creating. And so that I can write forever. And yes. then I'll all of a sudden look up and like five hours have gone by. Yes. And then the other is, um, it's interesting, but it's whenever I'm researching, right? So I think a lot of PhDs, this might be similar. Whenever I'm looking for information, like I have a question and I'm like scouring and trying to find that answer, I literally will sometimes spend the whole day yeah. doing that. And I'm like, oh no, I was supposed to do a lot of other things. <laughs> so. That's fascinating. You know what? And I didn't even think of that. I'm the exact same way. And you're right. I bet most people watching this, like we've all got a question in our head and you're right. That's usually the trigger. And then we just go down this rabbit hole. And I think that's what separates PhDs from most of the population. Most people aren't like that. They give up at like the first Google search, like the first instant. But as a PhD, you will go to a library, right? <laughs> like most people don't even know there's still libraries. You'll go to a physical library. You'll go look at a book, like an actual book that exists that was written 60 years ago. Open that book, flip to the back section, look at the references in that book to find older books or things that you can only find in those little weird things at the library where you can look at old newspaper film. Yeah. 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 Thanks. From like the twenties. That is, that is power right there. And so we're going to talk about how powerful flow states can be and why you should identify what your flow states are. You know, there are some similarities, like a lot of people writing, uh, it can be exercise. It can be research. It can be uh, conversation is one, right? Certain types of conversations for PhDs. One of our, I guess our uh, Achilles Hills is the only conversations we get lost in are ones that have to do with like technical stuff and work. And we talk about anything at like we get into an interview and somebody brings up the weather or like a personal story and we're just, we're like, what's the point? What's the point? And we can't, we don't get lost in it. Yeah. We're thinking about other stuff. So all of this matters, right? There's a very practical side to it and there's a way that you can leverage this, even change it um, to your advantage. So let's dig into the data here um, before we bring on Dr. Greg Wells. Uh, the first show me the data. Uh, figure. The title is Beyond Boredom and Anxiety. Um, for those of you who are listening to us by audio, be prepared to be impressed that I can say this name if I can. No pressure. Uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Pretty good, right? You can see that I spelled it out though here if you're watching by video. Uh, so this is a great, uh, a, it's from a great book called Flow. And I forget what the subtitle is, but uh, Flow is a, a, a book by uh, Mihai uh, sent me high. This you can actually find on uh, the website sci2ucsd.edu. There's a longer tail there. It's a PDF we'll put into the uh, chat box for those of you that are here. Um, but basically what you're going to see in this figure is two different charts. On the y-axis, we have action opportunities and in parentheses, we have challenges. And then on the x-axis, we have action capabilities. In parentheses, we have skills. And then there's these these uh, linear lines going through the center, right, uh, on the left graph, Jeanette, that say flow, and in parentheses, there's like play, creativity, it could be writing, researching, some of the things that we just said that put people in flow, right? If you go high on the y-axis to the top of the action opportunities, but low on the x-axis for action capabilities, you have anxiety, right? And vice versa, if you go high on the x-axis, action capabilities, but low on action opportunities, you also have anxiety. So it seems, Jeanette, that what, the, what they're showing here to set up 
the second chart is that the state of flow is right in between, right? Like there's like this sweet spot. Can you help me explain this a little bit further? Yeah, of course. Yeah, you're right. That's a great way to think of it is like a sweet spot where your capabilities, what you believe your capabilities are, and the challenges that you're faced with, where they're at this level where you feel challenged and engaged, but mm. it's not so overwhelming that you feel anxious, right? So it's about finding this place where you're not bored, right? And, and you're not anxious, <laughs> but you're like excited and you're, you're right in the middle of this sweet spot. Yeah, and, and, and anxiety, right, is a distraction. Boredom is a distraction. Here's the problem that I think a lot of us have as PhDs. And, and I've always said this about myself, and, and it's not just me that, that's special here. I think it's, it's all of us as PhDs. We have a very thin line, right? We're either bored because it's too simple, it's not engaging or challenging enough, or we are stressed out of our minds, right? So we can tolerate way more challenges than the majority of the population. So this thing is, you know, it, it, it's squished in one sense, our, our sweet spot. And so we have to be extremely challenged mentally to not be bored. The problem is, is that we go from finding that level of where we're challenged to the fullness of our capabilities to our biology just not being able to handle it, <laughs> right? Like that's why our line is so thin. We've, we've already pushed ourselves up to be able to handle mental challenges as far as almost humanly possible, really as PhDs as a, as a sample of the population. But our biology is a limit in some sense. We're going to try to help you hack that limit with Dr. Greg Wells. Um, but, you know, it could be, think about whatever your, uh, whatever your triggers are or whatever your, I guess, your uh, alarm bells are when you know you're under stress. A lot of us have been bored. We've challenged ourselves, challenged ourselves a little too much. And then like our eye tw starts twitching or we can't sleep and we're thinking about it or we feel depressed or we have this depression anxiety that's rampant in academia now. Um, anything to add to that, Jeanette? Do you uh, agree? Do you have yeah, a no, I agree. I agree that it's a limited thing. And I think that do, if we talk about the figure that's on the right, yes. it's sort of showing like that this, this A, Y, X dot, which is above into that anxiety section where you're pushing yourself too hard. Yes. And then they say you can sort of get yourself back into flow, right, by adjusting either the challenge level or your skill level. Yes. Right? But I think that it's also like mentality, right? So it's actually not your actual skills. It's what mm. you think your skills are. So yeah. if you can boost your like confidence a bit, right, especially as a PhD, a lot of us face this imposter syndrome where we struggle to actually own the skills that we do already have. So if you can take on those skills and own them, you can push that barrier up again, you know, like so that you're not as anxious, even with a big challenge, like finding yeah. a job. <laughs> Great point. Yeah. So the, I mean, the, the chart on the right is just showing, okay, what happens if you start drifting out of that sweet spot? Yeah. If, even if you start going up on the Y axis or up too far on the X axis where you're not going up respectively on the other axis, right? So you're missing that linear sweet spot. Um, how can you correct it, right? If you, if, and a lot of us, well, let's talk about how you get out of that sweet spot. So if you've ever been given a big challenge, like a job search, hey, you spent your whole life in academia, get a job in industry, you have no idea what to do. It's too big. You don't even know where to start, so you don't start. Like you just check out mentally, right? It's too much stress, too much distraction. And so you either are stressed out of your minds or you check out completely. Um, but if you chunk it down, right, and you focus on one small thing at a time, you learn uh, the, the first thing, then the second thing, et cetera, you can get yourself back in that sweet spot because now – the opportunity is matching up with the challenges, right? The opportunity for moving forward in that area is matching up with what your capabilities are because you're, you're, start, you're 
biting off something smaller, right? And so that's just a very practical example um, how, about how you can get into that, back into that sweet spot. And we'll talk more about that later with our guests. Very quickly, what is flow, right? We broke it down a little bit, but it can be broken down further into these eight things. And I'm just going to read it off here. So these are the eight characteristics of flow. Uh, complete concentration on the task, clarity of goals and reward in mind and immediate feedback. All right, so that's an important too is how can you make sure your capabilities are matching up with the growth opportunity? You need to have clarity on where you're going, milestones. We talked about this in the last radio show. You need to have rewards, like you hit those milestones, it feels good. You know you're making progress and you're getting that feedback. Crucial. I think number two is important. Um, number three, transformation of time. That's what Jeanette talked about, where you lose track of time. It's like five hours later. You've been researching for five hours. The whole day is gone. Whoops. Uh, number four, the experience of in, uh, is intrinsically rewarding. Like you don't need a trophy to do it. Like nobody's giving you a trophy for going down a rabbit hole of research. It's just intrinsically feeding that knowledge, answering that question. Number five, effortlessness and ease. That's what allows you to lose that track of time, right? Like you just keep going. It's almost like the process energizes you instead of, depleting your energy. Six, there is uh, a balance between challenge and skills. We talked about that. Seven, action and awareness are merged, losing self-conscious rumination. What does that mean, rumination? Jeanette, what, what, what's number seven? I don't understand. I kind of do. But maybe <laughs> uh, well, to me, it sort of means like instead of like thinking about what you're doing, right? So like as humans, we talked about this before, where we have this like secondary level of consciousness where we like can think about what we're thinking about. Yes. And that gets you just into this rumination loop where you're like stressing and like over analyzing the situation. So when you're in flow, that completely vanishes and you just, you and your purpose and your actions are all on the same level and that's all you're doing. And you're present. I mean, the word that's missing here is presence. Yeah, There's this great study and I, I, I know that Dr. Greg Wells will know this, but the, I love, I remember the graphic from the study and we'll have to find it. Maybe we'll put it in the, the post show notes later. There's these large bubbles in the figure and basically what they did was they had people pull out their phones and there was an app at random times, large sample size, and they had to say what they were doing, how present they were while they were doing it, and how happy they were. And the correlation between how present they were and how happy they were was amazing, right? So basically what it came down to is happiness in life comes down to how present you are. So things like, so whenever you're in a flow state, that is your peak happiness because you're completely present. This rumination number seven you know, think about all the times that you're in your own head, especially as a PhD, you're suffering from analysis paralysis, you're worrying about the next thing, you're worrying about like your friend in undergrad, who like you wrote their papers in undergrad, and now they're making more money than you and they have a house and all this stuff. And they seem like they're passing you by like, that's the rumination. And that's what will distract you. And so how do you get out of that and stay focused and get into a flow state? That's what we're going to focus on today. Eight, finally, is there is a feeling of control over the task. Control is like a dirty word, I think, in a lot of circles, but here it's a very good thing. Like we as humans need to have control over our environment and our progress. I mean, there's even studies, uh, a lot of studies in uh, management consulting that show that the more control you feel like you have over your job and your work, the, the, the feelings of success and fulfillment are, are closely tied to that. So all of this is important stuff. Jeanette, I want to make sure we have time for the last two tables before bringing uh, Dr. Wells on. This table... Looks complicated, but we're going to break it down very simply. The title is Systematic Review of Flow in Elite Sport. Um, and we're going to talk to uh, Dr. Wells about an Olymp uh, how this relates to Olympic athletes 
so it's a good tie-in. Uh, the, the kind of subtitle here is a systematic review of the experience, occurrence, and controllability of flow states in elite sport. Um, this is on eprints.lincoln.ac.uk uh, with uh, a lot of other characters, but we'll put the whole link in the, the chat boxes and on social media for all of you. So I'm seeing a big table. Jeanette, it says summary of the factors identified as influencing flow. So when it comes to flow, getting into flow, staying in flow, what's the most important thing? Um, so this table breaks it down into looking at how many times different factors came up in studies about flow, right? So what factors influence getting into flow and staying there? And then this shows you like how many studies that they looked at that those yes. were found in, right? So yes. there are a few things that appeared in all the studies. Like all of these things are really important for these elite athletes to enter this flow state where they can perform at their best. And the big one that I'd like to highlight is focus, right? Because that's, fo that's the focus of this episode. And that was key. Like they had to be focused on the right things at the right time in order to enter this, this state of flow. Um, mm. And the other things that were on there are preparation, motivation, arousal, thoughts and emotions, and confidence, which we also discussed in that first figure a little bit that you have to have all of these things together to sort of enter that ideal state. Yeah, and you know the focus, the control over the focus is the difficult thing, and that's what we're going to talk to Dr. Greg uh, Wells about a lot. Um, I don't know why I keep saying his first and last name, but uh, Dr. Wells, I can shorten it. So, uh, but we're going to talk about that. But I, I want to highlight preparation too, because this came up in a couple of the past radio shows. The one, the radio show we did recently on habits, as well as the radio show that we've done on time management before, and preparing, right? Spending a little bit of time in preparation helps you get into that focus state and stay there. You know, especially during the, the interview we had with James Clear on, on these, these atomic or tiny habits, right? That time that you spent in that transition period when you first were going to do that habit, like you need to make the decision to start surfing the internet or to start working, right? Little things like that, like that allows you to get into that focus state. And so if you prepare for it, if you think ahead, like, okay, this is the challenging moment. This is the limiting factor. That's a big difference. Also motivation. For, you know, a lot of people in terms of habits in the past have focused on cues, routines, and rewards. If you remember, we also talked about, what did he say? It started with a C. Um, it was cues followed by the motivation, the desire, the intent to actually perform the habit, right? So actually having the motivation to follow through and to be focused matters because you can do everything else right but if you're not motivated right if you're not driven if you don't have a good reason why it doesn't matter so same with your job search if you don't constantly connect to your motivation why are you doing this why do you want to get out of academia then it's going to be very tough for you to focus on your job search just in practical terms all right last table here the title is decision fatigue exhausts self-regulatory resources so first of all what is decision fatigue Jeanette um, it's when you have to make too many choices and then you struggle to control yourself. So it's like if you have to choose everything throughout the day, even if they're really small decisions, you're more likely to, you know, just sort of like relapse on the things that you don't want to be doing anymore, right? Or you're going to make bad choices based off of like not having the self-control that you need to take, to have like more agency over your day. Yeah, I think... You know, this is something that we've talked about before, decision fatigue, willpower depletion. Basically, you wake up, assuming you got enough sleep 
and you're eating healthy, specifically enough uh, rapid eye movement sleep, you're going to wake up with X amount of decision units every day or X amount of willpower. And then as you start making decisions throughout the day, and not just a decision, it can be simple decisions like, do you like this red pen better or blue, a blue pen better? Like literally that simple of decisions. You'll start to reduce both of those things. Studies show this over and over. Not only that, but if you have to make a decision to do something difficult, like shown here, like drinking vinegar or like putting your hand in freezing water, it will reduce those decision-making units. And so this is why by the end of the day, sometimes you're just like, I don't care. I'm watching Netflix. I'm eating three pounds of ice cream. Or at the end of like a Friday or a hard week, right? Same thing because your willpower is deleted. Maybe you didn't catch up on sleep during the week, et cetera. All these things are tied together. But for this specific experiment, which is in uh, a Psychology Today article, um, there are how many rows here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven rows. And they're looking at, in terms of the column headers, choice condition, no choice condition, and dependent variable, right? And the rows are just different experiments. So maybe you can walk us through these different experiments and tell us the overall conclusion. Yeah. So in this, they ran the participants through like having to do different undesirable tasks. Like, like you said, you know, drinking vinegar, putting your hand in cold water. Um, one of them was doing an unsolvable puzzle. One of them was doing a puzzle oh. that was solvable. And then one of them was doing math problems, right? All these things that people don't really want to spend their time doing and that take focus, yes. right? All of these behaviors, because they're not something that you really like innately want to do, you have to focus on doing them and force yourself basically to do them, right? Yes. And so the choice condition uh, was compared to the no choice condition. And choice condition means that people were forced to make a lot of silly decisions beforehand basically like you just said do you like this red pen or the blue pen better but they had to do that over and over again before they were subjected to this test and what you can see from the results is that in every single one of these examples when participants were forced to make these small seemingly unimportant decisions they lacked the self-control to keep doing the activity as long or as much so in the first one, they had to drink vinegar, right? Which sounds terrible. Um, so they, and in the choice condition where they had to make lots of choices, they were only able to drink, I think this is about two ounces. Yeah, about two ounces of vinegar. But if they didn't have to make any choices beforehand, they were able to drink almost um, seven ounces of vinegar between, right? So a ton more ability to self-regulate and to do something that you might not actually find that enjoyable. The, the key here is that if you make a bunch of choices before, right, it depletes your ability to accomplish tasks. So if you make a bunch of choices before anything, this is why we talk about, in, you know, doing the most important thing first during the day before your willpower starts getting depleted because it's going to get depleted no matter what. If you want to be highly focused for your most important things, do it first thing. As PhDs, the most important thing that we've been doing that we're used to doing, right, is experiments or writing a paper, et cetera, something to push really our academic advisor or our PI's goals forward. But once you make the decision to transition into industry, just as a practical example, you have to change your priorities, which means you need to do your top priority, something related to your job search, first thing in the morning. We always say a simple one is reach out to two people first thing in the morning. All of us have had the experience where I'm going to go to this networking event. I'm going to reach out to people on LinkedIn. And we tell ourselves we're going to do it. We'll get to it later. We'll get to it later. Then after a long day in the lab or a long day of teaching, et cetera, we're like, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. Or I had too much to do. I can't make it to this networking event. Do it first thing when your willpower, your focus, 
right, is, is peaking and you haven't gone through that period of decision fatigue. Great to go through all of this. It's really important for us, obviously, as PhDs, we want to look at the data and then we can have an open discussion about it. And uh, that's what we're going to do now. So we're going to bring on Dr. Greg Wells. I'm going to introduce him quickly and then we'll bring him on live. Very excited to have uh, Dr. Wells on. I've I've had the chance to speak with him and to well, speak with him. Uh, we, you know, they call it sharing the stage. We weren't speaking at the same time, uh, fortunately uh, for me, because his presentation was way better than mine. Uh, we did this in Toronto, and I've seen him speak elsewhere. Just an excellent presenter, um, very knowledgeable in the topic of focus and beyond performance overall. Uh, he is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, an associate scientist at the Hospital for Sick Children, and the CEO of the Wells Group. Sounds so professional, much more professional than Cheeky Scientist, the Wells Group. I like that. He's the <laughs> author of, he's the, author of best, the bestsellers, Super Bodies, Peak Performance, Secrets from the World's Best Athletes. And again, we'll talk about his experience working with Olympic athletes. Uh, the Ripple Effect, Sleep Better, Eat Better, Move Better, Think Better. I love that book. Check that out. And most recently, The Focus Effect, Change Your Work, Change Your Life. Uh, Greg is a sought-after speaker on the topic of human performance and has spoken at uh, top events like TEDx, the Titan Summit. Uh, he's, worked, he's done uh, speaking events alongside Sir Richard Branson, Robin Sharma, and Steve Wozniak from Apple. Uh, Dr. Wells is a frequent contributor to The Globe and Mail and has been an expert source on other top media outlets like ABC News, 2020, The Discovery Channel, TSN, CBC, and CTV. He also served as the sports medicine analyst for the Canadian Olympic Broadcast Consortium uh, for both, in both 2010 and 2012, uh, those Olympic Games. So fantastic. Real quick before I bring him on, this is his LinkedIn page. He has, please notice, a personalized with text added LinkedIn ba banner. We're going to talk about that later for those of you looking for a job. It's a great thing you can do. This is his book. We're going to put the links to his book, to his LinkedIn profile, to his webpage in the chat box as he speaks um, here with us. And without further ado, Dr. Greg Wells. Hi, Greg. Dr. Azale, what's going on, buddy? How are you? Pretty good to see you. Good to see you. Profile, huh? Yeah, it has. So I think our last chat, I was in Nicaragua and we did a podcast interview and I was like on the beach and I don't know where you were but it went great and uh, I'm yeah. glad you think that my talk at Titan was good because I actually was thinking that your talk was way better than mine so we'll just boost each other's egos here for the next little There while. we go. Thanks. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I actually, I remember that. I'm, I know that you've traveled quite frequently. How many um, countries have you been to now? Uh, so I'm going to Poland on Monday and that will be number 50. So wow. yeah. Mm -hmm. How did you beat? That's more countries than that's more countries, or about the same as uh, what we have represented in the entire association. For those of you listening, so that's that is a massive number. Um, yeah, so so Greg travels frequently. He has a, a large international following. You know, he's a, a highly respected uh, professor, writer, author, speaker, etc. Um, and what I want to focus on here with you is, is focus, of course. And I want to ask you first. You know, I always like to start with. I guess like we all do now, why? Why did you write The Focus Effect? Like what was the reason behind it? Where'd you get that itch? I mean, it's a large project to write a book, right? Yeah, totally. So what was happening is I was actually at a, a speaking event in, in Zurich and I was with my buddy, Bruce Bowser. We were at the back of the room where all the speakers hang out and I was sort of just looking around and I noticed that so many people were on their devices in the middle of some of these epic talks. And I'm sure some people were taking notes and that's all good. Sure. Uh, 
But it really just struck me. And I was like, hey, Bruce, check this out. Like, just look around the room. And then we went out on break and everyone's on their phones. And then we went out to dinner and people are on their phones. We walk along the street and someone walks into us because she's looking at her phone, not looking where she's going. We're like, oh my God, it's crazy. And I'm like, we should write a book about that. And Bruce goes, okay. And I was like, no, I'm just joking. Like, he's like, no, no, no. Yes. We're writing this book. And so we ended up collaborating together. And over the course of about, I don't know, six months or something like that, we just put it together and it seemed to go really well. Yeah. And I mean, I think we've all experienced that, right? Um, a, you know, almost walking into traffic while you're on your own phone. Um, but really seeing people, whether it's a con- concert, whatever, they're on their phones. You know, for me, I'm always like, so what? Because you're just recording the event so you can watch it later or you're taking notes like you're using technology. But I think it crosses over into distraction. We don't think about, you know, in particular what I was fascinated with the, the studies on how much mental energy and time we spend going back to a task after we're distracted. So you're watching somebody speaking, just sticking with your example. You say, I'm going to take a note on my phone or I'm going to record a little bit of this, whatever. We think like, oh, we're fine. But it takes your brain a while to come back to being focused on that and actually taking in the information. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, the what a lot of people can probably relate to is imagine you're engrossed in a book, a great story. Or you're reading it, you're completely in, your brain's going, your imaginary world is all around you in this amazing book. If you get distracted, someone asks you a question and you're like, whatever. And then you come back to it. Like how long does it take you to get back into the state where you're completely engrossed with that book? Probably, you know, 60 seconds up to like five minutes. And that happens to us every single time that we're pinged by um, an email alert or a message on your phone. So the first strategy that I have for everybody, because I like to keep it granular and give people specific tactics is right now, phones, iPads, tablets, computers, turn off all your audio notifications at all times. They should never be on ever Mm. because they interrupt you. They interrupt everyone else around you. And that's a simple way to get going. But uh, what I've started to think about is two sort of four things, focus to distraction and then intention versus compulsion. And if you're intentionally recording something because you want to keep those notes, it's an important thought. That's great. If you're compulsively scrolling through Instagram, that's problematic. And that's sort of a very simple way of, of, of thinking about it recently that I've been playing with. So, and yeah, from, Dar- from Daria, yeah, these devices are designed to capture our attention. Our attention is the currency, yes. right? That is what we are, that is what's being taken from us. As long as you're con- you are controlling your attention, then you're probably doing what you need to be doing. If your attention is being controlled by someone else, then that's a problem. Yeah, and I don't want to go off script here, but I think what you are so good at is identifying the real question that needs to be asked. And I remember from your talk at Titan Summit, just to go back as an example, before I ask you one related to what you just said, is you really dug into, like, and I've always been fascinated about kind of turning a difficult event into something positive. Like, you, it's like most people who are successful in life, they have to go through something difficult. They have to go past moderate pain to like extreme pain to make a change. And for those of you who are here, you're probably here because things got so painful for you in academia that you were like, I want to learn about business, industry, et cetera. And the question you asked is, how can you have that shift and that change without the pain? And I just right. thought that was brilliant. It stuck with me ever since. Um, I don't want you to answer that question right now, but maybe we, if we have time later. But the same thing here, what I think you just said is, and what I've always been curious about is, okay, compulsion, it sounds a lot like a habit, right? And intention, the problem with intention is, when you do something intently, 
you're using a decision-making unit. So it's like it's a cost-benefit analysis in a sense. So if you're doing something with intention, like you're just pulling this out to, to uh, write a note, whatever else, how do you keep that intentional activity from turning into a habit which makes it a compulsion? I don't know if you have an answer for that, but it just came up when you said that. Yeah, it's really interesting. I don't know if I do have an answer to that. What the technique that I've been using a lot lately to try to control that, control email, control social media, control everything, is blocking time. Mm -hmm. And so I have to use social media because I'm transitioning out of academia into business. So I want to share my information with the world to capture people's attention and make sure that people are thinking about the stuff that I'm thinking about. Uh, so I'm, I'm using social media to share positive messages in the world. So I use it, but it can become overwhelming because you make a post and you're like, oh, how many likes does that have this hour? Right? So um, I've, I've now done to, I've gone to blocking social media for 30 minutes at the end of every single day where in the evenings I check everything, I respond to everybody and I make sure that the posts are queued up for the next day, 30 minutes. Once that's it, I've, I've actually taken it off my iPad um, I try to do it only on desktop and monitor a couple things on my phone, but that's about it. Like really control it. Mm. Email is another life destroyer. Uh, so you have to really control email. And, and when you look at it, the top people in the world that I've been encountering and, and working with are learning to block emails twice a day, 11 PM, 4 PM, go in, check your email for half an hour, an hour, get it done, and then move back into something that's important. If you're working, if you're switching task switching between uh, something that you have to do. Let's say it's a job search. Let's say it's preparing a resume. Let's it's an application letter. You need to dive deep. It needs to be, you need to be completely engrossed in that task. And if you're flipping back and forth between that task and your email, your text messaging, and the rationalization is, well, I have to know if that person that I've applied for is going to respond to me. You know what? They can wait 30 minutes. The world can wait 30, 30 minutes. Yeah. Uh, that's really, really key. And the way that that works physiologically inside the brain is that your brain cells uh, burn sugar and oxygen for energy and they have no stored energy. So whenever you have a thought, whenever you're doing a certain task in your brain, a certain part of your brain will work and blood flow will go to that part of the brain. Oxygen and glucose will be delivered to that part of the brain. So it works, it's functional. Electricity can fire around and create the thoughts, create the learning, create the problem, solve the problem. If you task switch, there's no such thing as multitasking, by the way, if you're task switching, if you're moving back and forth between tasks, then that part of the brain needs to shut down and the other part of the brain needs to be activated, blood flow needs to shift, it costs a lot of energy, costs a lot of time. Mm. And so anytime that you can set yourself up for uh, success, or sorry, a way to set yourself up for success is by blocking your tasks, being super focused, do one thing at a time. As you said earlier, priority management, most important things early in the day. Uh, and if you can do that, you're gonna, you're gonna really set yourself up for success and, and overcome a lot of the obstacles that exist in our world right now. Yeah, and I think that's a big thing. And, and the, the question that always leads me to when you talk about, okay, you know, being intentional with blocks of time, setting up your environment, automating things, all good. But at the same time, your brain has unlimited potential and you need to be in control of it. Like you can use all these things, but you can't blame these things. You are responsible at the end of the day. You, you know, everybody has a great plan and I'm paraphrasing like a boxing quote, right? Until they get yeah. punched in the face or everybody has a plan until something goes wrong. That's really what it means. And so things are going to go wrong in life. And I know you have this great example in your book um, about an Olympian and we're actually bringing an Olympian on our next radio show, Ruben Gonzalez. Uh, so it's a, it's a good tie in here, but you have an example of an Olympian who lost 
her mom before having to compete. And obviously it's the Olympics. So <clears throat> she still had to compete. You know, that's a, a dramatic example. But for many of us, we set well-laid plans for the day. We said, I'm going to be very intentional blocks of time, all this stuff. And then within the first two hours of being at work at the lab, whatever, something happens, a fire comes up and we're totally thrown off. How do we get our focus back? Yeah, it's a great example. Um, that was Joanie Rochette in 2010. And that was in the Vancouver Olympics. And Joanie was getting ready to go to the Olympic Games. And you know, six days before the Olympics began, her mom passed away. She was super close to her mom. And so when she stepped out onto the ice at the Olympics to compete in the long program, the crowd went crazy, of course, as you would to support the athlete. Everyone knew the story. And she became very emotional. And she began to cry. And so to her credit, she stopped and went back to the side of the, of the ice and put her arm up on the boards and her coach came over and it, the, the camera zoomed in on, on Joanie. And if you look closely, she comes, when she first gets to the edge, she's literally shaking. And then she takes a breath and then she takes another breath and the arms, the shoulders drop, third breath, deep breath. She nods her head and then she walks, oh, sorry, skates out onto the ice. And you're allowed 60 seconds from the time that you step foot onto the ice until the music has to begin. And she literally skated and skated and skated and skated until 59 seconds and she set herself in position to begin. She used every single instant that she had to calm herself back down. She used a breathing technique, a body technique to get control of the brain. That's the key. Mind controls body, body controls mind. Mm. And the stress center of your brain is connected to the breathing center of your brain. So you can activate yourself you can get more excited short fast shallow choppy breaths like hard exhales you'll see that in tennis players that scream when they hit the ball that's the extreme activation of your body and mind using breathing and then you can do the opposite which is when you take a long slow deep breath and calm yourself right back down again mm. and so you can use breathing to help get control of your mind and body to enable you to get back into that focus state out of the anxiety zone and back into the challenge zone. And that's what we saw in the data that you presented earlier. And that's a practical technique that everyone can do that can really make a difference for them. And do you have any, you know, speaking of practical techniques, going off script here, but do you have any suggestions for, you know, I think that one of the main problems is, is that we know, okay, yeah, breathe deeply, like take a breath, right? This is not rocket science. But how do we know to trigger that in ourselves? Like, do you have to set it on a timer like every day you do it? Or <laughs> how do you know to come back to that? How do you reach that level of, of just like the, the Olympian, that, that self-awareness of knowing that you need to do X, Y, Z steps because you're out of your mental game, you're distracted, you're stressed? Yeah, Isaiah, you said it. It's self-awareness. Honestly, it's knowing what zone you need to be in in order to perform at your best. So the exercise that I use for athletes is we actually take some time and we go back and we think about in a moment when you were in the zone, when a, in a moment when you were performing at your best, when you're deep in focus, when you're writing that paper, you're delivering an amazing presentation. What were you, and then there's three things we ask. The first one is what were you doing physically? Were you re physically relaxed? Were you standing tall? Were you stretching? Were you sitting? Like physically, what was happening? Second thing, what was happening mentally? What were you thinking? What type of attitude did you have at that moment? And then the third component is what were you feeling? Were you excited? Were you scared? So I actually know that if I'm going to be the best that I can possibly be on stage when I'm doing public speaking events, I have to be slightly scared. 
So sometimes I actually need to get myself more agitated because if I'm too relaxed, I don't perform well. Yes. And so I'm like, oh my God, there's a lot of people here. Like there's some epic people, like Wozniak's over there listening. This is crazy, right? And then I'm like, ah, and then I can perform well. Yeah. But there's other times, like when I'm playing with my daughter and son in the park, where that doesn't work well. And in those cases, you've got to be chill. You cannot take your, your, your stress into your family life. So in those cases, you've got to really, really calm yourself down. So it's about self-awareness. Where are you right now? And understanding what state do I need to be in? And understanding that you control your state. If the world does not influence, you know, you just create your own states no matter what. Hmm. And you really need to be able to work to control that. And you totally can. It's not going to happen the first time. The first time you try it, it's going to blow up. Second time you're like, okay, maybe that worked a bit. And the practice that has probably had the biggest influence on my ability to get into the zone, stay in the zone, eliminating room and eliminate ruminating thinking, which you alluded to earlier is meditation. And mm. so I've got headspace, the app on my phone. Calm is another one. That's amazing. I actually took my family to India up into the mountains last year to learn meditation. because I want my kids to be able to do it. Um, so it's an incredibly powerful tool that we can use to train the brain to be able to focus and to especially let go of thoughts that are, not moving us forwards. Yeah, great examples. I mean, one that I like to do because I have a hard time sitting still is uh, taking a cold shower because if I tell yeah. my brain to do something, <clears throat> like cold shower is great because you know you're not going to die, but it's probably like the worst <laughs> thing that your brain can imagine because you know it's coming. Yeah. So that you're, fo- you're doing this right now for this amount of time and you, you can train your brain to listen to you, to focus, et cetera. Yeah, meditation is all kinds of things. And I think I love that you came back to that because a lot of times it's easy to say, well, it's technology's fault. It's this fault. I just need to automate better. I need to do this. No, you also have to be mentally strong as an individual to be focused. And you have to practice that, right? 100%. I'm glad you mentioned a cold shower. A lot of people are doing that right now. And there's a study that I found, and I'm blanking on the author. I'll, I'll try to find it and send it over to you guys. You can post it in the show notes, is that – uh, a cold shower, specifically about 30 seconds, cold water, base of the neck between your shoulder blades, increases the release of adrenaline, which improves concentration and focus and improves test scores on, for students. And so I recommend for everybody, when you're finished your warm shower in the morning, 30 seconds of cold water right at the base of the, of the neck. And there's all sorts of really interesting benefits that are beginning to be observed with that. Oh. So people can try that out. All right, great. And I think we have about, let me see, let me check the time here real quick. Got about two minutes. So okay. I want to get to a couple of things here. So real quickly, busy work versus, versus productivity. How do you measure it, right? Um, and, and when you talk about it in your book, what, what distinguishes one from the other? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up because this is an area that's so important for people. And ultimately what we're talking about here is making a fundamental shift in the way that you manage yourself. And the fundamental shift that I'm recommending people consider these days in this era of distraction is shifting from time management, living out of your calendar and your to-do and your task list into priority management. So we're not managing our time anymore. We're managing our priorities and we're always going after the top one, two or three priorities during the time of the day when you are at your best using your circadian rhythm. So I know Greg, I'm, I'm really good mentally from about 7am until 11am. After that, I, did my, I deteriorate rapidly. So I've built my entire day, wake up, work out, double espresso, four hours of power work, and then I'll disappear for a while. I actually went for a run at lunch to do what I call this, and Robin Sharma calls the second, second wind workout to get my afternoon back because I knew I had to be on with you guys and just put back, um, 
a bullet coffee to make sure I was on fire for you this <laughs> afternoon. But after this, I'm going to go like crash. So that's the thing. Uh, move from time management into priority management and you're going to crush everybody. So is that what you call your, the, the power work time in your book? It's when you are mentally peaking and protecting that time for your highest priority tasks. 100%. And I've built my entire week around it. So Mondays, I do meetings back to back to back in 15 minute blocks, phone meetings, sales meetings. I still have a team that does research at the hospital for sick children. I've dropped the teaching and the committees. I've moved just to doing research. Wow. Um, so I meet with them uh, in 15 minute increments throughout the morning, any business meetings in the afternoon at 6.30 at night, I meet with my admin assistant on the phone all day long. All my admin is done on Mondays. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, 7 to 10, 11 a.m., I'm in power work mode. And then the afternoons are other projects that I need to do and, and get done as well. So I've actually constructed my entire week around leveraging power work, blocking tasks, and trying to make sure that I'm at my best when I, when I need to do the things that are the most important to me. Fantastic. And uh, I think all of these topics are crucial. Thinking in terms of priorities, what are the one or two big, biggest things you have to do that day? And blocking time, again, it's usually in the morning. There are studies that show this. There's a great review, Harvard Business Review, that shows that you get about 90 to 120 minutes of peak mental energy time during the day where you're four times more productive than any other time. That is, I mean, that's literally your, your relative time to play with, right? Time is relative in a sense because your mental energy will allow you to get more done when it's peaking versus when it's dropped. Yeah, and, completely. I want to draw attention as well to Aja's comment here and that yes. she, he or she said, short meetings to 30 minutes, whereas most people try for 60. Absolutely. Most people try for 60. I set them at 15. So I do 15 minute meetings like the, and there's a company that's hyper successful. I think it might be Zappos. I forget which one it is, that actually only lets conference rooms be booked for seven minutes and they've got no seats. So you can't sit down. That's great. Uh, and then the other one is like, you just do everything that you can to try to minimize the time that you're in meetings so that they're super hyper effective. So yeah, go with that and take it to another level, not just 30 minutes. Let's get down into, into 15 minutes, get in, speak, get out and get back to what you need to be doing. Absolutely. And uh, I love that. Uh, thank you very much. Please thank Dr. Greg Wells for coming on. Um, we, we will show his book throughout the rest of the session. I want to make sure we can get our, our next guest on to the focus effect. Check it out. Go to his website. Is it drgregwells.com? It is. Yeah. Thanks very much. Dr.gregwells.com. I'll show you that as well. And we'll put all of this on our post show notes and our blogs, everything. Greg, thank you very much for your time. Bye guys. Take care. I'm going to go right to bringing on Asia Isbel. She is currently the director at Takeda. She's also worked for Shire and Baxter and Amgen. Uh, lots of experience in industry and again, lots of experience in knowing what is the differentiator, especially in terms of focus between somebody who's management material and somebody who's uh, entry-level material. I have a very specific question because she is at work right now and has to leave very soon, but I wanted to get your take, Asia, on how to stay focused once you're in industry, when things kind of go topsy-turvy. I know you've had a lot of experience working at different companies where there, maybe there's been a merger, where something big has happened. Uh, what do you do to stay focused on your career, on your team, et cetera, uh, during those times? Yep. And hello, by the way. Hi, how are you? Can you hear me okay? Perfectly. Okay, perfect. I'm in this tiny little phone booth room that's echoey, so hopefully you guys aren't hearing that. Um, so to stay focused during topsy-turvy times. Now, I will tell you that topsy-turvy times happen more frequently than not, <laughs> whether there's a merger and acquisition or not. 
Um, I like to call them fire drills. Mm. Um, fire drills are extremely common uh, in the working world. And that's because people don't know how to plan ahead and then they need something from you. So this happens almost on a daily basis. Um, during times of fire drills, it's even more important to structure your day in a way that allows you to get the work done that you need to do. So um, the way that I do this is fire drills typically for me now happen a little bit later in the day because I work with people that are mostly based in the U.S. And they typically happen in the afternoon um, because I'm getting them from my Boston counterparts, mm. right? So I kind of almost can predict when a fire drill is going to come through. Um, I focus my effort and my sort of hard thinking time in the mornings. Um, I will put meetings in the afternoon. So meetings that I'm not leading, um, you know, that's, that's kind of out of my control a little bit, but the meetings that I'm leading, I can put in the afternoon and that requires a different type of mental energy than the heads down, you know, more strategic thinking, putting presentations together for senior leaders, et cetera, that I do in the morning. I also know that I'm totally off my game the first 15 minutes I'm in the office, right? So I'm getting my kiddo off to school, I'm in the car, I'm dealing with traffic, I get to the office, and the last thing I wanna do is hop right into a meeting. I need 15 minutes to get my cup of coffee, to get myself settled, make sure nothing happened overnight that does require my attention. So I block off time in the morning, uh, to kind of get settled, get some good hard work done, and then um, do my meetings and my fire drill stuff in the afternoon if I can. Yeah, so that's I, I, how I structure my day overall. But here's the thing. During mergers and acquisitions, you have to stay focused on your work. Mergers and acquisitions will just automatically cause people to start doing things like talking a lot in the hallways, um, gossiping about who, what's going to happen to whom, and frankly speaking, um, there's a lot of loss of productivity because of that. Mm. I value myself enough to know that I can contribute to the company during those times, right? So I don't allow myself to be as distracted as other folks during those times because people are relying on me to get stuff done, right? So um, if I know what the company priorities are and I align most of my activity to the, those priorities, then that can help you stay focused, right? So literally asking myself sometimes, is the thing that I'm doing right now actually meaningful, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or can I put this off until tomorrow? Like, where do I actually need to be working and doing my, you know, focusing is, is something I ask myself all the time. The way this plays out on a day-to-day -day basis, if you're working on a brand, for instance, there's a strategic plan, there's a tactical plan, and I used to have a one-pager that I would carry around for my conversations. And if people were asking me to do other stuff, I would literally ask, hey, this is, you know, these are the five things that we agreed upon that I was gonna work on in the next year. Happy to change my focus if it's a meaningful business impact, mm. but how is that gonna impact the other things that I'm working on? Those prioritization discussions, which um, I think we were just kind of getting to at the end, should drive your your day-to-day -day and should help you focus your your mental energy and your actual work energy and where you put your work in. Yeah, a lot of ground that was covered and uh, we'll spend some time unpacking it. Uh, Asia is, of course, the, the program leader for Scientist MBA. And this week, for those of you who are able to attend, we did a mergers and acquisitions uh, webinar. And, you know, the, staying focused during these 
times of change during these fire drills, as Asia said, is, is crucial. And uh, we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit deeper here. I mean, honestly, your career depends on it to stay focused, right? If you're the kind of person that's off like gossiping, you know, talking, making conjecture or whatever, um, that's not what the leaders are looking for during those times of change. They're looking for people to continue pushing things forward, right? So um, if you care about your career and your career trajectory, it, it behooves you to stay focused and figure out how to to keep your mental energy moving forward. And that's really the difference between a management track and just a typical employee entry-level track. If you are going to be the one gossiping, if you're going to be the one losing your mind because there's a change of the company every time something happens, you're not going to be able to be in a management position. They're not going to see you as management material. That's right. They're looking for poise during those times, right? Great, great word. So thank you very much, Asia. Please thank Asia for her time in the chat box. And we will be able to bring Asia on next week for a slightly longer uh, session. So thank you, Asia. Thank of course. You. Have a good one. Bye. I want to recap a couple of things. So what Greg and Asia both talked about was being very intentional in terms of your time. And there's a kind of a construct in industry that's known as dividing your day into your mission and your management time. So, for example, your mission time usually is in the morning. It's where you focus on your biggest priorities. You do your deep work, things that uh, really matter that you need to push forward, the strategy, things you have to do yourself especially. And then in the afternoon, when your willpower is a little depleted, you do the things that require less mental energy, like responding to emails, like taking calls, right? Doing, you know, research, the things you have to write, the things you have to actually create on your own, they take a lot more mental energy. So you want to do them when your mental energy level is peaking. Reaching out probably takes the most mental energy. A lot of you who are searching for a job know this. That's the very first thing you should be doing. So Greg talked about carving out a couple of hours first thing in the morning, right? Getting into a space where you can do your highest priority items. As somebody who's searching for an industry job or looking for your next one, especially as a PhD where we're a little bit introverted, it takes a little bit more of a startup energy to reach out to somebody. Do your reach out first thing in the morning. Two people every day. First thing, right? And again, save your more management tasks, the emails, your correspondence, calls for later. I think that was an important point. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show. Thank you for tuning in. And remember to join us for our next live show, which we stream on our Facebook page as well as our YouTube page every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just go to facebook.com forward slash mycheekyscientist to watch us live or go to our Cheeky Scientist YouTube page again every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you want to learn more about Cheeky Scientist, you can go to cheekyscientist.com. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Hey.